Good Sunday, South Valley Community Church family. We are in week two of our series, Lessons from the Early Church, and we're going to be looking at an event that occurs on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Now, what's significant about this is today on the church calendar is actually Pentecost. Now, um, you might think like six, seven, eight months ago, we so wonderfully planned the schedule that this worked itself out, but that is not the case. But it's a cool thing to actually be looking at Pentecost and it be the day of Pentecost on the church calendar. Now, the event of Pentecost is this powerful moment in biblical history where God sends his spirit to empower his church. And specifically, when this first happens, the spirit comes down and gives the first followers of Jesus this ability to speak in other languages so that people who are there in Jerusalem at this time begin to hear words spoken in their own language. And this ultimately leads to the proclamation of the gospel. Now, Pentecost solves a number of problems. One of the major problems it solves is something we discussed last week, and that has to deal with the impossibility of the mission of the church. Jesus tells his first followers, you're going to go to the ends of the earth proclaiming the gospel message, and you're going to baptize and teach people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's like, come on, man, there's just these first, these first people with this message of a crucified and resurrected Lord. Is that actually going to happen? And from a historical perspective, it seems impossible. But also from a historical perspective, that's exactly what happens. And it's because the church is empowered by the Spirit to complete the mission of Jesus. Now, there's another problem that this solves, and that has to do with an ancient problem that begins way back in the beginning pages of the Bible. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. And here's sort of the, the simplified setup, if you will. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, God creates. He creates Adam and Eve, places them in a garden. In that garden, God dwells with the first humans. God's presence is there. He walks with them in the garden. Sin enters into the equation, and ultimately the first humans, Adam and Eve, are expelled from the garden, and they lose this sort of unique access to, to, the, fellowship of, to the fellowship with God's Spirit. And after they are kind of kicked out of the garden, sin continues spiraling out of control. It gets worse and worse. Ultimately, this climaxes with the flood account. Humanity sort of has this reset, this restart, and they begin to multiply after the flood event. And then that sort of brings us up to where we're at today with Genesis chapter 11. And it says, at this point, the whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. And people migrated from the east. They found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make oven fire bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. Now, this story is known as the Tower of Babel, and it's pretty interesting, and it's sort of like last week. If you're honest with yourself, it's, it's a little weird, it's a little bizarre, and it's kind of hard to understand, but there's key words and phrases that make this story come to life and give it its meaning. So the first thing we have to understand is this issue of humanity building a tower. Now, the region is Mesopotamia, and the time period in Genesis 11, you're not supposed to picture a simple tower. From a historical perspective, we know that this is more akin to something like a ziggurat. And what a ziggurat would have been 
is a kind of tower-like structure, but it was meant to give the appearance of a mountain. And there was a theological reason for this. Ancient people believed that the deities, the gods, would rest high in the heavens and that the mountains approach the heavenly realm. There would be spaces where heaven and earth can meet. The divine and the human realm would touch. So when you built a tower-like structure, it was an artificial mountain. And this mountain was supposed to go to the heavens so that, again, there could be this touch between the divine and the human realm. Now, what's fascinating, though, is when we read this story, is we often immediately assume that the direction at which the humans want to travel is up, that they want to travel up to be with the gods. But that's not necessarily the, ca the case. When you built sacred space like a temple or a ziggurat in the ancient world, the idea was you were building this sacred space, not so that human beings could go up to the heavenly realm, but rather so that the gods or the deities would come down to your space, and specifically so that the God's presence would be there with you down in the earthly realm. Now think about this. What was lost in the garden? It was this unique access and fellowship to the presence of God. And now all of a sudden we have this sacred space being built with an attempt to have God or the gods, whatever these people might be believing at this time, come down. And this is sort of a different direction than we usually picture. Now, you might be immediately asking yourself, well, what's wrong with that? We know that later in the Old Testament, there's a tabernacle and Solomon builds a temple and God's presence comes down and fills the temple. And then he is, has his unique presence in that temple. So why is, is this painted in such bad light if this is what Solomon would, would do later in the biblical narrative? The clues are there in the text. This, this is not done with good intention. So they build this tower to the top of the sky, and then they say two significant things. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Scattered throughout the earth. This is significant. Go back to the very first pages of the Bible. What does, what does God tell the first human beings? What does he tell his image bearers? Human beings are to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. In other words, they're supposed to scatter across all of creation, all of the earth, and they are to reflect the glory and goodness of God back into creation. So in other words, they are resisting in Genesis 11, the very first command to the image bearers to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, reflect God's glory and goodness back into the created order. Rather than spreading out and filling the earth, they are concentrating themselves in rebellion to the very first command in Scripture. Secondly, they say they are going to do this so that they can make a name for themselves. Now, the idea would be in the ancient world that if, if a deity or a god were to come down into the sacred space of the temple, that you would make the name of that God great. That's the point. But what's taking place here is these people want to make their name great. So when you put this in the biblical context of the first several chapters of the Bible, you see that these people, they're not trying to build a temple for the one true God. That's not their motivation. And their motivation is not to be obedient to the one true God because they don't want to scatter throughout the earth and they don't want to make the name of the Lord great. They want to make their own names great. So this is like 
anti-everything of the first few pages of Genesis. This is not a godly project. This is not a wise product project. This is human rebellion, human pride, wanting to make a great name for themselves. Interesting, in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 12, there will be a man named Abraham who does submit and does obey God, and God makes a covenant with him and says, you're going to have a great nation, a great people, and I will give you a great name. So for Abraham, he obeys and God makes covenant, and you will have a great name. But these people are the opposite. They build this tower, and they want some type of presence of God or some false God to come down, but whatever it may be, their motivation is rooted in evil. And it goes on. Verse 5, Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, If they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible. Come, Let's go down, therefore, and confuse their languages so they, not, they will not understand one another's speech. God sees this evil human project. E humanity is united in purpose and in language, and they were rebelling against God and wanting to make their own name great. So God comes down and says, we have to put an end to this. There's this, this weird phrase in here. It says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Now, oftentimes people are confused by this because it appears upon first reading that God says, the humans, they're going to accomplish anything they want to. We, we have to stop them. And you, you may be thinking of all the good things human beings could accomplish if they were united. But that's not the context to this. Humanity is united in rebellion. They are united in arrogance and pride. And what God is saying is that any like evil that they can come up with, they're going to they're gonna do it. And so God comes down, and there's this confusion of their languages. And keep, that, keep that phrase in mind. There is confusion of languages. And then in verse 8, it says, So from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So what they were resisting, the scattering, is now taking place. The Lord scattered them throughout the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon, for the Lord confused the languages of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. So the very thing they're resisting is now what they get. And God sort of does this as a mechanism to restrain human evil. He puts a restraint on a united humanity bent on evil and rebellion. And this restraint, though, leads to the, the, the confusion of languages and kind of that fragmentation of humanity is something that has played out through history. And human beings, when they're united, are bent towards evil. But one of the, the problems that we encounter from this text is even when there's a fragmentation that occurs, human beings are still bent on evil. So what happens as human beings divide? Well, we amplify those divisions. We become even more tribal. And what we do is we, we we magnify differences to the point that we can hate people who are different, different than us. And we can amplify differences to such a degree, and this is what plays out through human history, that it leads to things like war and murder and genocide. Now, all of this has been a massive historical problem, and it continues to this day. If someone's different in any way, we find a reason not to like them, or maybe worse, to hate them. And in a historical sense, wars and genocides, all these horrible, evil things occur. Which brings us back to where we began in Acts chapter 2. What is God going to do with all of this? 
What is God going to do? Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now remember the first story, the Tower of Babel incident. What, what is occurring now? The Spirit of God comes down from heaven. And what is the Spirit of God? That is the presence of God. The Spirit, the presence of God comes down from heaven and gives His presence to the first followers of Jesus. And as He does this, they begin to speak in other languages. These are other human languages that other people are beginning to hear. The text goes on in verse 5. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven. Now the puzzle, the puzzle pieces begin to come together. What are you supposed to image? People from, it says, every nation under heaven. All the different languages, all the different scattering of these people have come together in this concentrated event on the day of Pentecost. God's presence, His Spirit comes down to dwell with his people. He's empowering them, and all these people from across the world are coming. Verse 6, when the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Did you follow this? They are confused because they are hearing people speak in their own language. Remember, in Babel, they're confused because they can't understand each other. Now this is the opposite. It's like a positive confusion. They're confused because we're all speaking different languages that we wouldn't normally speak and we can all understand each other. It's a reversing of the Babel event. The confusion now is a good one because people can understand. And then there's this emphasis on all the different types of people who are there. They were astounded and amazed saying, look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own na native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our language. They were all astounded and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And then there's this funny line in verse 13, but some sneered and said, they're drunk on new wine. You know, it's, there's always the cynic there. No, this, this can't be happening. We're just, we're just drunk. And Peter basically stands up and is like, no, people, people aren't drunk. It's too early for that. Now, this language event, this supernatural empowering of the Spirit, isn't just simply to reverse what occurred at Babel or simply to create uh, a scene where people can understand each other. It's leading to a purpose. And this purpose is the gospel of Jesus Christ because immediately Peter is said to stand up and begin preaching. It says in verse 14, Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. 
And then he gives this sermon that's filled with, with Old Testament scriptures, bringing the, the, the Old Testament narrative to its climax in Jesus. In verse 22, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know, though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. You use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. And Peter goes on with this sermon and then it ends with this. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, the gift the gift of the pouring of God's spirit, the, the speaking in different languages, all of this is to this point. You need to know that this Jesus, whom you crucified, is both Lord and Messiah. In verse 37, it says this, When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many words he testified strongly and urged them, saying, Be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted the message were baptized that day. About 3,000 were added to them. So this is the beginning of the mission of the church and the Spirit is empowering the church. And on the first day, you have this supernatural event and 3,000 people are saved, believed, and baptized. This is a powerful event. And it's important to note here that this theme will now play out in the rest of the book of Acts, that God's Spirit is not just seeking one people, that the gospel will go first here in Jerusalem, but then, as we talked about last week, to, to Sumeria and to the ends of the earth. God's family will be composed of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And this is essential. It's important not to miss this point. Pentecost is not diluting the differences that the nations have. It's not trying to go back to Babel where everyone spoke one language. It's not trying to, to create just one simple culture. The point is that people from different tribes, tongues, and nations, different cultures, different backgrounds can now come together in unity under the banner of Jesus Christ. So it's not a, a necessarily a diluting of differences. What it is is a magnification of that which brings unity. And so you see people from different walks, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different cultures, all throughout the book of Acts, coming together and setting aside differences under the unity and banner of Jesus Christ. This is what God's family looks like. God's family is composed of different types of people from all across the world. And this issue of family is of utmost importance because human beings naturally long to have a good family. We naturally long to want to be a part of a family. And we all have different backgrounds. Some of us came from good families. Some of us came from bad families, you know, and we all have different stories. But the Christian claim is that no matter what, you will always have a good family in your father's family. 
and it is a blood-bought family. And that is a type of family this world is longing for. The, the language of family is so abused in our culture, it's, it's diluted to the point that it has, doesn't have any more potency. So for example, like with sports, we talk about like the Laker family or the Raider Nation or whatever sport team it may be. And we're a family. And we talk as if like we're this, this tight-knit family. And it's like, dude, we don't, you don't even know everyone. Like in the stadium, you don't know these people. It's not a family. Or if you're watching YouTube, you might have a channel where the, the person always starts off, you know, hey, how's it going? What's up? What's up, family? How you're doing? You say, like, what's up, family, to an audience of a million people. That's, that's not how it works. And so what church is, is it's, it's intended to be this family that comes together. And in next week, in the next chapter, you're going to see how that family ought to treat one another and how they ought to act and behave and what they ought to implement as a family. But what church is at its core, when we gather on a Sunday morning, it is God's family, His blood-bought family, people from every tribe, tongue, and nations. And it's a moment where we set aside whatever differences there may be and unite under the banner of Jesus Christ. And the reason why this is so important is this is something our world is in desperate need of. Our world is incredibly divided. Our culture is divided. And the church has a unique opportunity to demonstrate what an actual unified family looks like, where you may not agree on every last thing. And sometimes, yes, there's divisions, but you're able to work through those things because you realize you are a blood-bought family. And what brings you together is greater than anything that could divide you. We unite under the banner of Jesus Christ, and it's essential that we get this. So we're going to continue through the book of Acts. Next week, we're going to be looking at kind of what does, that, what does that church family look like in a kind of practical way. And the book of Acts outlines through that for us. And it will continue this pattern of God's family expanding throughout the world. But for today, I just want us to focus on the fact that God has given us His presence, His Spirit to empower us for mission and to unite us as God's blood-bought family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that from the beginning, even when the first humans, Adam and Eve, were exiled from the garden, there was always a plan in place for you to dwell with your people. And we see signs and, and signposts of that in the Old Testament with the tabernacle and then the temple and then with the work of your son, with the tearing of the veil, and then climactically with Pentecost, your spirit being poured out upon your followers to be with them, to dwell with them. And so we thank you for your presence in our life. May we be obedient to your mission, that we would faithfully proclaim your gospel to the nations. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.